Welcome. Good morning. Uh, my name is Michael Hall. I'm a senior editor at Texas Monthly. Welcome to the Tribune Fest and the Fight Over Forensic Science panel. Um, for the next hour, we're going to be talking about forensic science. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, I don't know that we would have had a panel like this. It wasn't that sexy a topic, but it has be been, it has become that way for all kinds of reasons. It's on hit TV shows, and of course, it's a huge piece of evidence in the fight against the bad guys and the fight against getting the good guys out of prison. Uh, DNA, is, of course, is the big star, but today we're also going to be talking about some of the less reliable forensic sciences, which is hence the whole idea of the fight over forensic science. Uh, I'm going to introduce the panel. Right over here is State Representative Rafael Anchia, a Democrat from Dallas. He has served four terms represented House District 103, before entering the House, Mr. Anchia served two terms on the Dallas School Board and in his first session in the Ledge, Texas Monthly, named him Rookie of the Year and in the 80th session named him one of the state's 10 best legislators. Next to him is Jeff Blackburn. He's the founder of and chief counsel to the Innocence Project of Texas. The State Bar named him Criminal Defense Lawyer of the Year for 2002 to 3 and in 2009, Mr. Blackburn has served, since 2009, he's served as chairman of the Legal Services to the Poor in Criminal Matters Committee of the State Bar. To my left is Shannon Edmonds. He's the Director of Governmental Relations for the Texas District and County Attorneys Association, the largest statewide association of prosecutors in the country. Mr. Edmonds serves as a liaison between prosecutors and the legislature on criminal justice, juvenile justice, and government representation issues. And finally, Dr. Nizam Pirwani is the Chief Medical Examiner in Tarrant, Parker, Denton, and Johnson Counties. And he's an adjunct professor at Texas Wesleyan in Fort Worth. Dr. Pirwani was appointed to the Texas Forensic Science Commission by Governor Rick Perry in September 2009, and he was reappointed in October 2001. We're going to have an hour here. We'll, have, uh, we'll open it up to questions when we've got about 20 minutes left. Um, and I thought a good place to start on this whole thing is the, uh, the National Academy of Sciences report that came out in 2009 and caused quite a stir nationwide. Uh, the report was a detailed summary of the, quote, serious problems, quote, of the forensic science system. It said that disciplines had no standardized protocols, oversight was inconsistent or non-existent, and education and training requirements varied across jurisdictions. There was too much room for human error, and the report slammed techniques like bite mark and hair comparisons, but also went after things like fingerprint analysis, which it said was essentially subjective. Um, in fact, except for biological disciplines like DNA, which has a standardized methodology, the report found that, quote, forensic science professionals have yet to establish either the validity of their approach or the accuracy of their conclusions. And the courts have been utterly ineffective in addressing the problem. Now, I think we should emphasize this doesn't mean that the report was saying, let's throw out all forensic science except for DNA. But it did say that we need to scientifically validate them, standardize them, and fix the system. So now we've had almost four years now. And you know, how has Texas dealt with this? In the courts, in the ledge, and in our, our, our state agencies. And I thought we'd start off with, with Jeff Blackburn, defense lawyer who has worked with a lot of these issues and also because I know he'll have an opinion on the matter. Jeff, how has Texas done in the courts, especially with forensic science? Well, you know, we've done a terrible job in the courts, okay, and it really illustrates the problem. I mean, by all rights, none of us should even be here discussing this as a legislative issue. The way it's supposed to work is we have a properly functioning judicial system with good defense lawyers who are raising these issues, fair-minded judges and uh, who make decisions when cases go to the Court of Criminal Appeals, they're going to make a fair-minded, forward-looking 
decision. But we don't have that because it's Texas. And that's just the reality that we have. So the result has been that we have to do better in other branches of government because, by and large, the Court of Criminal Appeals has given up its function of, uh, of improving the criminal justice system. Now, you know, that's a heresy that you're not supposed to pronounce, but it's true. They decided, for example, in the junk science range or forensic sciences range of uh, cases. I'd like to say that's the first time the word junk has come up today. Well, I'm hoping it won't be the last. Probably won't be the last. Uh, their record is, uh, is quite bad. So, uh, and the, the current law that we're operating under comes from a case called Ex Party Robbins that was decided a few months ago. Ex Party Robbins basically sends a message, and I, I won't go into the details of the facts about it, but I'll tell you the bottom line is that no one is going to come out of prison no matter how terribly flawed the forensic evidence that was presented against them at their trial was. Well, you know, we understand that. I think that we all know enough about the Court of Criminal Appeals by now to know that they have a deep bias against change and against opening up reviews of these old cases. Now, the great thing is that all of that being said, you know, in Texas, we get great things happening because of bad things that happened beforehand, okay? Uh, and some of us might say that, that nothing good really ever happens in Texas in the criminal justice area unless something really bad has gone on before. Uh, the Cameron Todd Willingham case, some of the atrocious decisions that the Court of Criminal Appeals has made has led to uh, I, what I think is uh, an opportunity for Texas to become one of the best states in forensic science reform. I mean, that's just the process we deal with. Uh, we've got, for example, here today, members of the Forensic Science Commission, Dr. Pirwani, uh, Lynn Robitaille, the General Counsel. We probably have the best, most strongly functioning Forensic Science Commission of any state in the Union. We have a, a new fire marshal who's up here in the front row who, who my project is doing a review of arson cases with right now. That's, I don't, that's not happening any place else in the country. That's happening because uh, I think we have enough fair-minded people who want to uh, change the system and improve it that, uh, that, some of us ha that we have to take up the slack left by the Court of Criminal Appeals. It's too bad we have a badly functioning, uh, frankly, dysfunctional uh, court system. But on the other hand, it gives the rest of us an opportunity to do something about it. And I think that in the wake of their decision-making, we have spawned a lot of really good uh, ideas, and we've spawned a lot of really good people who are devoted to improvement. Now, Shannon, it's terrible that Jeff said all these nice things about the system because, I mean, I'm, I, I think that you might also say that the, the TDCAA has done some, some good proactive things in, in, in relation to the, to the NAS report. Um, you know, this is the forensic fight. I feel like an old Saturday night live skit. Like I said, Jeff, you ignorant slut. <laughs> um, Thank you. But the reality is we work on a panel a together uh, and we, uh, this doesn't have to be a fight. This doesn't have to be a fight. We have the luxury, and I want to follow up on something you opened with, Michael. It's, the reason why we didn't talk about this 20 years ago is twofold. One, the science didn't exist, or it's just coming into existence in a lot of these areas. The second thing is that crime was at an all-time high. We didn't have the luxury of going back and looking through old cases. Crime, I mean, if I drive through my nice neighborhood here in Northwest Austin, where homes were built in the 70s and 80s, the original owners who lived there still have bars on their windows. And I live in one of the safest communities in Austin today because crime has dropped 42% since 1992. 
violent crime, drug crime, property crime across the board. I mean, if we had done that for uh, school dropouts, cut it by 42%, or if we had cut it, the legislature had you know, cut obesity rates by 42%, everybody would be proclaiming victory. But what it's done in our area is <laughs> taken the focus away from some of the good things that we've been doing, and a lot of the funding has been sent somewhere else. And that's what we've seen is we've been a victim of our own success to some extent. Now healthcare and education get more and more funding from the legislature. And what that NAS report said to me, if every one of their recommendations, almost every one of them, ended with a cry for more funding for research, more funding for training, more funding to take labs out of the law enforcement area and make them independent. We've been trying to do some of that here in Texas as well. Uh, I just finished, I literally haven't even finished unpacking from our annual conference, which was going on last week, where we trained over 900 people, and we had forensic science issues and things like that. We've uh, really dedicated ourselves to taking some of the lessons that have been learned from that NAS report and trying to improve the ability of lawyers to address forensic science issues in the courtroom. But lawyers are still at the mercy of the scientists. Just like when you go into your doctor and your doctor says you have cancer and you need to do this, well you rely on him the same way that judges and lawyers rely on the experts that we use, like Dr. Piwani, to tell us what happened. Right? Yesterday morning I was in a, one of our uh, talks on gunshot wounds taught by another medical examiner. By the way, if you ever want to kick your coffee habit, just sit through a photo show on gunshot wounds at 8.30 in the morning for an hour and a half. That will wake you up. Um, so, but we can only do so much with training if the funding isn't there. And that's the thing that we've seen is, although we've created a Forensic Science Commission and the legislature has paid some lip service to the importance of this, if we really want to end wrongful convictions, we need to put our money where our mouth is. Let's bring in the legislature, Representative. Um, you came into the ledge in 2009 and uh, worked with the, to do the Tim Cole Act, which uh, helped a lot with uh, more money for exonerees and all. And I mean, what what was the attitude back then? Have you seen the attitude change when it comes to forensic science? I mean, they they need more money. How how are you going to implement these things? Well, for me, this is a a really interesting issue because I'm a corporate finance lawyer, right? I'm never in court. If I'm in court, I'm a defendant, okay? Uh, uh, or there's a malpractice uh, uh, lawsuit. So th this was a little bit um, of uncharted territory for me. I'm used to dealing with credit facilities and opposing counsel and, you know, banks and, and, and private equity funds. Um, but news came out of Dallas uh, um, during the, the last couple of years about a series of exonerations um, innocently uh, innocent men who had been convicted, some of whom spoke in the last panel, and I was really, really happy to see them outside. And um, it piqued my interest, and, and more for, uh, from a, a, a personal liberty perspective, and this is an issue that resonates across party, uh, um, uh, party identification. I mean, if, if, you, if you get on right-wing talk radio in Dallas and you say, hey, look, the most grievous offense to personal liberty is for the state, for the government, to lock you up as an innocent human being. I mean, people get it. And um, 
And so there was, there was a, a great deal of, of interest in this subject, both by Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and, and that's kind of how I came to the subject matter. But I've never tried a criminal case, uh, so this is, this is a, a little bit uh, new territory for me. I fear uh, that we, we've lost some important opinion leaders in, in the legislature. Um, and whether you're talking about Chairman Madden, uh, who is retiring, uh, Chairman Gallego, who is uh, uh, running for Congress right now. Um, Senator Davis is in a 50-50 district, and uh, you know I think she's going to win, but it's by no means a, a slam dunk. Uh, so, so these are these are people who have de de dedicated quite a bit of time to this subject matter, and they're not going to be uh, in the legislature anymore, or or, or may not be. Uh, in addition to that. You know, while I sense that uh, through the leadership of Chairman Madden, Chairman Gallego, and others, there, we had, we had achieved, reached a tipping point in the legislature. I mean, when I first got there in 2005, well, ah, these exonerees, you know, if they didn't do this one, they probably did something else. And, uh, you know, they probably should be locked up anyway. Yeah, they might have been innocent of this crime. Uh, there, was, there were certain members of the legislature who were also are no longer there who were... Um, Real, uh, real focus on kind of a, a tough on crime versus a, a smart on crime uh, approach, and 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 I saw uh, good legislation fail that first session. When we achieved parity, virtual parity in the House, uh, and it was 76-74 in the 2009 session, I thought we really made a lot of progress with the composition of the House uh, changing dramatically this next cycle. About 50 percent of the House members will be either freshmen or sophomores. Uh, and then the, the composition of the Senate changing significantly. I worry about our ability to make further progress. As was suggested, we've made a lot of progress on exonerees, on DNA, but I still think there's a lot of work to be done. And um, I'm, I'm worried about the, the tenor of the next session in, in terms of moving the ball forward. I'll make one other comment, and that's, that's about the, the judicial system. And, and I'll I'll relate it to you in a story. I, in 2005, I, I went down to Buenos Aires at the invitation of... Um, uh, the embassy there to talk about the administration of justice in Texas. And um, we were talking about different models in the United States for selecting judges. And I was, I was speaking to a, a, the, the Argentine bar and members of the, the Supreme Court. And I said, well, you know, in Texas, we elect our judges. <gasps> There's a big gasp that came over, the, uh, came over the audience. And I said, Yes, we elect our judges on a partisan basis. <gasps> another, another deep gasp. And then I said, yes, and the judges are allowed to take political contributions from the very lawyers that they have pending cases uh, uh, with. And then somebody got up in the back and he said, and you call us corrupt, you know, <laughs> which, which I, 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 thought, I thought was an interesting perspective from Argentines, no less, right. uh, uh, about, about the way we select judges here. And I think it speaks to some of the challenges that we have in the judiciary just because of the structure that we have uh, for uh, appellate criminal justice yeah. being... being elected and funded on a partisan basis. I mean, th there, there are some real opportunities there to do things differently in Texas. Dr. Pirwani, let's bring in the Forensic Science Commission, which Jeff brought up. I mean, it was, if, if not one, it, it was one of the first commissions established by a state, maybe even the first. Of course, it got caught up in politics for a good deal of its uh, first time. That has changed now, and they seem to be getting down to cases. I mean, what's, what's the mood at the Forensic Science Commission right now? Well, 
I, I think we are moving in the right direction. Um, I, you're right, for a short while we were bogged down in issues. And I think there was a lot of publicity uh, uh, regarding the Willingham case. And uh, we were aware that this is a very high profile case and it would bog us down. But now that the Willingham case is behind, I think the Commission is now working very hard and going forward. Really our agenda basically is to, um, to make sure that um, we introduce science in courts that is valid and consistent with the standards that are acceptable. I hate the word junk science. I think that the, the <laughs> forgive me, the media has, has, has made a big deal about that. Uh, either the science is uh, a valid science or it is not a valid science. And our objective is to, to look into all that. Uh, obviously, um, uh, the second objective we have is uh, to work towards uh, education. And I, and I think we've done a tremendously good job uh, our general um, uh, counsel is sitting right there, and she uh, played a very significant role in trying to promote education. And we had a fantastic conference just this last June. So I think we are moving forward. Um, to me, as a commissioner on the on the on, on the Texas Forensic Science Commission, perhaps the most uh, significant thing is that uh, the state of Texas has come around and joined us as partners. I think that this is an issue for all of us to sit together and talk. The district attorneys, uh, the defense, the innocence project, and the fire marshal's office, um, uh, we were, I personally was very excited when Chris was appointed. And I think um, he is very forward-looking. A uh, couple of things we recommended in our report, Willingham report, one of them was uh, education and uh, adopting standards, national standards. And I think the state wants to do that and sincerely wants to do that. The second is a peer review and case review, and that's very, very important. You're talking about a retroactive case review? A retroactive case review, and as you go forward, um, uh, review the cases uh, um, that are coming uh, uh, under in consideration. Now, let me say just a few words about uh, peer reviews and case reviews. Science in general, especially forensic science, is a multidiscipline uh, beast, if I can use the word. Um, there is no single person who has all the answers. And everybody has to contribute to reach a conclusion. Now, there is no truth and falsehood in science. Um, we talk in terms of probabilities. And the probabilities are based on what information we have gathered. If new information comes forward, the things will change. So, for example, in my office, um, we are six forensic pathologists, um, and uh, we have what, what is called critical case review twice a month. We sit down, uh, bring all homicide cases uh, before they are signed out. Um, uh, we have our chief investigator that has done the death scene investigation. We have our chief of crime lab, the chief toxicologist, the human ID director, our anthropologist. We all sit together. Uh, with our fellow and we discuss the case. We have crime scene photographs, autopsy pictures, and we say this is what we found. This is the tox report, this is the crime report. What is our conclusion? And sometimes in the high profile cases, we invite the police to join us and also the district attorney. Uh, they will sit behind and listen to us. So critical case review is very important that we reach a consensus and this is what we want to do in Texas, uh, uh, and I think this is a very proactive, and I, I truly believe that this Texas is the only state that is planning to do that, as a matter of fact. And you're correct, Texas was the first state from everything I know regarding that. Now, I just want to, since I have the, the, 
the podium, I just want to say a couple of things about um, funding and unfunded mandates that sometimes are imposed on the criminal justice system. Um, it is wonderful to say that every single lab should be accredited and every technician should be certified and we should have standardized terminology. This is what NAS stated. But it is very, very hard to do that. Funding is not to the level that would allow us to do all the things we want to do. So it's a forward march into, into the future. Let me give you an example. Even if I have funding sometimes, uh, there is, there are, we don't have the trained professionals. Uh, we recently had to hire a new trace analyst. And uh, we put the ad in the national papers, the academy papers, um, you know, forensic science journals uh, in Texas. And um, we had maybe three applicants. And when we examined their profile, their, their, bi their bios, uh, they were totally unacceptable to us. So what did we do next? We went and raided another forensic lab. Okay. Was so, the issue basically a low salary? Do you think uh, that had a lot to do with um, it? No, we just don't have trained scientists. For example, take medical examiners. You know, it's, it's really wonderful to say that every medical examiner should be board certified in forensic pathology before he can practice. And I think this is a desired goal, and we, I think we should have that. But there are just 650 board certified forensic pathologists for the entire nation. How can you get all these people to come and work in Texas or any other state if they mandate that? So that is our challenge. And, of course, I mean, one of the problems with that is that people can get up and testify in court uh, without having what we might consider proper scientific training and credentials and leads to basically what you would be saying about junk science. I mean, let's, let's talk about this. I mean, because there is like a real, that phrase right there is kind of like a fulcrum point. I mean, what do you mean by junk science? Well, let me give you guys a perfect example of it that Mike and I are intimately familiar with. That's what, I, this is the lead standard in, uh, in forensic science. That would be the dog scent lineup, okay? Now, I don't know if you all know what that is. It's a practice that was being used. And there are people in prison today based on nothing other than dog scent lineups. The Court of Criminal Appeals finally came around after you. We did a report. Uh, we worked with Mike, and they, you did a great article on it, and it became a national embarrassment. Turns out that Texas, the along Project, did a great report on that, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. But look. Dog scent lineups were being used as testimony in court and still under the standards that we have in the court system right now could easily get used again. In fact, I'm told from my friends in Colorado and a couple of other places that they're starting to uh, get used there. Now, here's what they are because it's, it's important to understand it. This is a fraudulent guy who goes around the court claiming that he has magic dogs that he can take to a crime scene maybe from maybe 15 years later, and they can identify and tell him who was there that day. Okay? The problem is that jurors will believe that. Everybody likes dogs, right? That's probably why they don't have crime scene sniffing cats. <laughs> Although I did suggest that maybe it'd be better to have something that everybody liked even more, like a baby. Why not have a crime scene sniffing baby? Or a unicorn, maybe. But the truth is, this is, I mean, this is absurd. And it sounds ridiculous when you explain it until you realize that there are people serving time in prison right now in Texas based on evidence like that. Now, that's an example of where the court system has gotten to.
And like Representative Anchia pointed out, I mean, you know, it doesn't do to just wring our hands over and say, oh, we, we need to have, you know, a better court system. Well, look, we decided a long time ago, sometime after the Battle of San Jacinto, that we were going to have a popularly elected court system that would always be subject to being run haywire. And that's what we got. So it's going to be up to everybody else, and that's why the commission is important. Prosecutors like Shannon are important. Certainly the legislature is the most important thing because we've just got to accept that as long as we, we have elected judges, DAs, uh, we're going to wind up with dog scent cases because somebody needed to get convicted, and it was easy. There's one other point I want to make, just like Dr. Pirwani, because I've got the podium or the floor. Why not? The idea of forensic science, you know, flawed forensic science just being a... a, a a problem that's somehow disconnected, a problem of science uh, alone, I think is, a, is kind of a myth. The, the truth is what we're dealing with in the really bad cases is a technique that is deliberately used by prosecutors to get somebody convicted. Just like the dog sense or hair uh, and uh, fiber gross analysis, sometimes there are honest mistakes that get made, but sometimes they're not so honest at all. It's a deliberate use. It's certainly not not anybody that uh, you know in the DA's uh, group, but you've got to remember something. We don't have a criminal justice system in Texas. We have 254 criminal justice systems. County by county, there are vast differences. I'm from Amarillo, and I can tell you that Travis County and Potter County are slightly different, a <laughs> little bit. And uh, I can tell you that in some of the counties I practice in, which even I try to forget the names of, like Ockeltree, uh, when they get busy trying to convict somebody, they're going to bring in the dogs or, or uh, uh, bad hair and fiber comparisons, and that's continuing and ongoing. So it's going to be up, uh, up to the ledge, I think, to correct the process. And if we don't do that, it's going to be up to the ledge, too, to provide a, a vehicle for people who are already in prison and need to come out. We know now there are probably hundreds of people in prison right now who are there on the basis of some fundamentally flawed provably phony scientific technique that was used to get them there. Shannon, what do you, when, I'm sure that your back goes up a little bit when you hear the phrase junk science and some of the stuff that Jeff was saying. Uh, absolutely, and to follow on what Dr. Pirwani said, you know, one man's junk science is another man's DNA. It was prosecutors who got DNA accepted as evidence in Texas and the criminal defense bar fighting its use in court originally. Now that's changed because it just depends on whose ox is getting gored in some of these situations. We have also things like, uh, there's a lot of research right now into shaken baby cases. There's a reevaluation of the science behind that. And when prosecutors relied on what the experts said about this, they're not doing that because they're out to convict an innocent person. They're doing it because they're trying to hold responsible the person that at that time, the science told them was responsible for it. And as I said earlier, we're kind of at the mercy of the state of the science. Where I'll, I'll further disagree with Jeff is, look, I've been working in the legislature for a long time. The last people who should be picking winners and losers in court are the legislature. The, the admissibility of a particular science should not depend on who has a better lobbyist in the legislative process where there's horse trading going on. Oftentimes, you know, I read an editorial that compared one report to another and said, well, the truth is probably somewhere in between 
So we'll go with that. And that's what the legislature does a lot. That's not truth at all. That's just trying to come to an agreement so that you can declare victory and go on to something else. And so we can't let the legislature, especially one that only meets every two years when science changes, <laughs> decide what is and isn't admissible in court. The courts need to do that. What the legislature can do is better equip them with knowledge, information, and funding to make the right decision. But I mean, one way that the legislature could be able to help is, for example, with the idea of cognitive bias. You know, cognitive bias is when the person doing the experiment gets too much information and makes an assumption that possibly changes the result of the, of the, the, the test. I and mean, we saw this in the Brandon Mayfield case. And we see this sometimes with police lineups. And this past year, we have a new law as of starting this month where the police now, when they do lineups, have to do it blind. The cop can't know who the suspect is. It seems like that's a way that the legislature might be able to come out and say, okay, well, if we, do, if we can do blind lineups, maybe we should have some kind of law making, you know, when you do these tests in, in forensic labs, they should be done blind. The, the person doing the, the testing shouldn't know anything about this case. I mean, that would seem to be a very basic thing that we could do. I'm completely offended by Shannon's uh, <clears throat> discussion of the legislature as a nonlinear uh, process. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... The fact, the fact that Shannon would suggest that there are considerations other than the truth in the legislature is, is shocking. Um, you know, uh, another weakness to our citizen legislature is that not, not only are we uh, in session only once every two years, but, you know, you have people with skill sets that may not always line up with the issues of the day. Uh, the issues of importance, the things that need to be fixed in the state. So, you know, I, I bet you if you looked at the composition of the relevant uh, uh, committees, the, the subject matter expertise on forensic science, I, I suspect we don't have any forensic scientists on the committees. You may have a prosecutor or two, a former prosecutor or two. You probably have you know, someone in the insurance business or maybe a trial lawyer or um, a house spouse. Uh, important work, in case uh, my wife is listening, very important work. But, uh, you know, not, not the, the highest order of subject matter expertise. That being said, uh, we can rely on the administrative branch. We can rely on science. And, and I think... Uh, act in a way where we're not picking winners and losers, but where we're setting the rules of the game and allowing for uh, people to hash it out in the courts. And, and that's, that's where I think we should be playing. And when, when things become crystal clear, and that, that's relative, by the way, that, that, there's a sliding scale on what is and what is not crystal clear, but when things become crystal clear to the legislature, we act, uh, codify, set the rules, and then you all horse trade. I mean, the fact that prosecutors would suggest that horse trading only occurs in the legislature and not between defense lawyers and prosecutors is uh, also kind of interesting. But, um, you know, the, the reality is we've got, to, we've got to set the clear lines and then you take it from there. I worry with the composition of the new legislature and the loss of leadership. I mean, in, in the very short period of time I've been in the legislature, we moved from that, hey, they were probably guilty anyway, sort of tough on crime, you know, the harder we hit back, the, the better to a really uh, more enlightened approach. However, with the loss of this leadership and so many new members coming in, um, you want, I mean, there will be a lot of people who never saw uh, Jerry Madden in action. And that was a thing to behold, defending a, a, an omnibus reform bill, right? 
so that we're going to, I, th I think the likelihood is we're going to go backwards. To Dr. Pirwani's point about funding, um, the governor's drawn a, a line in the sand. You will probably have over 50% of the members of the House who will sign on to a pledge to say no new funding, no uh, tax increases, no fee increases. And that, that really ties all our hands. And whether you're talking about criminal justice, forensic science, a state water plan, um, public ed, public health, you know, we're, we're, in some ways, I, we abdicate our responsibility to, to work on important issues of, uh, like life and liberty, because that's really what we're talking about here, life and liberty. I mean, what's more important than that? And if we can't dedicate funding to those activities, and I'm not sure we should be in the legislature. Dr. Perwani, maybe you could uh, work for free. <laughs> uh, um, I, I just want to pick up on a couple of points, if you'll allow me. Uh, cognitive bias, uh, that's a very, very significant issue. I think um, eyewitness uh, testimony, of course, is an issue for all of us, not just in Texas, but across the nation. And I think we have seen those exonerations uh, that came through because of DNA and scientific testing. So we clearly recognize cognitive bias. Uh, however, having said that, Truly, it'll be, it would be wrong to preclude information to a scientist doing the exam and that he does a bl blind testing. He'll be a blind scientist. That's all he's going to be. For example, I have a case in the morgue, an elderly person, um, and um, the crimes, the death scene, information leading to the death scene is not provided to me. And I'm given this body and say, what did he die of? Because if I tell you what I found at the scene, you'll be biased. Um, okay, so I do the autopsy and I examine the heart. He's got bad coronary arteries. Uh, he's on polypharmacy like all elderly people are, uh, multiple drugs. So was it a drug interaction, multiple drugs? Uh, did I have cardiac disease? But they didn't tell me there was a plastic bag at the scene. And in fact, this person had placed a plastic bag over his head and died of suffocation. So my conclusion would be, absolutely wrong if I didn't have all that information. So as a scientist, I want to have everything that is present for me before I reach a conclusion. This is why we hold a multidiscipline uh, evaluation of a case. Everything that has to be known is presented because it's, 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 it's probability. That's what it is all about. Now, can the scientist have cognitive biases? Answer is, of course, yes. But we have to overcome that. And if Jeff, if you think that our criminal justice system is bad, go to Guatemala, go to Mexico, go to Peru, go to Africa, go to Rwanda, go to Lebanon, where all these countries I have been to, and Turkey, and Afghanistan, and, and Louisiana, and Iran, <laughs> and, Great, and Great Britain, where the scientist's word is the last word, and the defense does not have any experts. He is a god, literally, on the stand. And when the doctors from, from England will interact with us, they say, you're trying to tell me there's an expert who's going to contradict you as a medical examiner? I said, yes. And I have to be very careful what I say. But I'm the coroner. Nobody can say anything to me because I'm God. So no, we have a fantastic system, and Texas has got a wonderful system. And I'm biased, of course, cognitive bias. I live in Texas. <laughs> Let me um, push back a little bit on what you said about the Court of Criminal Appeals, because the Court of Criminal Appeals has actually seemed to be, I mean, they hosted this, uh, mm -hmm. their Criminal Justice Integrity Unit hosted this forensics seminar in June. There have been the, uh, the, the Winfrey case, which was a, a, a case in which uh, one of uh, Pikett's dogs uh, 
sniffed on somebody, uh, a guy up in Montgomery County, or uh, uh, he and his son were both sent away to prison. His daughter is still in prison based on the same information, but the CCA threw out the case because of the junk science. There have been a couple of other cases, the Hannah Overton case, where the, the court seems to be much more aware that they should pay attention to some of the science that may not be as valid as they thought it was. Well, you know, look, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm really not, uh, uh, I mean, I'm not, I think my role today was to be the black and white guy and uh, no nuances, <laughs> and that's okay. But the reality is uh, there's a lot of gray out there. And I want to point out another thing, too, uh, and gore somebody else's ox, which I think is the biggest and most fundamental problem we have. We don't have a functioning adversarial system at the trial level in Texas. Here's why. Eighty percent of people that come through the system, at a minimum, are indigent and are going to get uh, paid by the court lawyers. Um, and, you know, again, I don't want to get into abstract hangering and just hand-wringing over it, but the problem that we have in these cases, for example, like the dog cases, nobody ever objected to this guy at trial. No one objected to this plainly fraudulent method being used. Even in those cases that are now hitting the Court of Criminal Appeals, they were done without objection at the trial level. Well, those defendants didn't have any money, so they got horrible lawyers who, are probably, who probably know that if they cause too much trouble, they're not going to get another $350 appointment from the judge because that's the reality in Texas. Now, that's a problem that can be solved. Uh, and I think that if we did bother to solve it, if we had a, a decently funded public defender system, we wouldn't have a lot of these issues. But we don't, and we're stuck with what we have, just like a we have a politicized judiciary. Now, in answer to that question, the Court of Criminal Appeals is very uneven, okay? I don't think it's, I don't think anyone would argue with me when I said they have a deep bias against, against letting people out. To them, and I understand where they're coming from, to them, the most important value is the value of people respecting the government and giving and, and feeling that our government is legitimate. And to them, like many prosecutors and judges, a terrible blow is, uh, uh, happens when even a plainly innocent person comes out because then people's faith in the system goes down a little bit. That's their number one bias. If things get bad enough, like in the case of the dogs, I, I can tell you, I think that without your article, and I'd like to think without that report that we did, I don't think they would have granted review in those cases. Uh, also, without one of our board members from the Innocence Project of Texas handling those cases pro bono, they wouldn't have granted review. Now, how often do you really get that in the big run of, uh, of flawed forensic science cases? Not often. You, there aren't enough pro bono lawyers to go around. There is not a well-funded Innocence Project that can work on these cases. Uh, we don't have, and there aren't good criminal defense lawyers who get experts at the trial level because they're afraid to do that or they won't get any more court appointments. So it's that gross dysfunctionality of the system, I think, at the lowest level. Where we, uh, well, let me put it another way. The adversarial system that we have, I agree with you, Dr. Pirwani, is it, it, it is the way to do it. We're much better than Britain, potentially. But we've deliberately hardwired our system in Texas to not function as a truly adversarial system because we don't allow that adversarial process to work, uh, because we underfund criminal defense lawyers. We don't, and, and we don't really effectively allow them to have experts and to challenge this kind of stuff. That's where we've got to start, systemically.
Jeff, I don't mind doing pro bono work for you. You never asked me. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, uh, there are a lot of forensic pathologists who would be willing to do that. I, for example, do a lot of human rights pro bono work. I work with the Amnesty International. I work uh, for the indigent, uh, 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 what do you call, lawyers that support uh, amnesties for people who, are, who come here as refugees in the country. And we do a lot of work, and I have a lot of colleagues who do that. Tell us, and we'll help you out. Yeah, but, but again, here's what I'm saying, and I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but... But we're talking about a system that now has 160,000-plus people in prison. We're talking about a court system that chugs on daily in 254 counties, convicting people every day. There's never going to be enough people to do that kind of work pro bono. These, the cases that we see, Anthony Graves, who you'll hear from later, uh, the Winfrey case, these are, uh, Tim Cole, whose case I handled, these are the result of like a bunch of, uh, of an absurd amount of effort being put in by dedicated people who don't have any money trying to get that done. You can't expect that to operate as, the, as an institutional counterweight in the system. What we don't have in Texas is a true counterweight to the abuses of science and, the abu and some of the judicial abuses that we see by judges who want to get reelected. Until we get that kind of counterweight, until we get a properly functioning indigent defense system, I believe that we're going to continue to see these problems because somewhere there's going to be an opportunistic prosecutor that's not like Shannon, who's going to come up with some new technique, some, some new animal that can sniff a crime scene and say who's guilty or, or gross hair and fiber comparisons. So that's the ultimate problem, I think. I mean, some other, we're talking about reforms here, some of the, the things that the National Academy of Sciences recommended, one of them was... Uh, uh, taking crime labs from the control of law enforcement agencies uh, where, where they've been for, for years and making them independent. I mean, I guess we're talking about money here again. Do you think that that's a, is there any possibility of something like that happening? It's, uh, it's very hard to take a crime lab out of a police jurisdiction or a sheriff's office. Uh, um, we have tried in our local jurisdiction to consolidate two crime labs in our Tarrant County and it's been impossible. We've been trying for 20 years. Uh, uh, the funding comes from the same tech space, and what we had thought that it would be reasonable to, to put all this together, but the police are absolutely adamant they want their own crime lab because it serves their purpose and it serves their need. And, and the chief of police basically told me that if I have a high-profile case, I can tell my lab to stop everything and do this case. And, and, there, is, and there is plus and minus. What I truly believe is that um, funding will always be an issue, but more than funding, one has to recognize that science is always on the move. You mentioned the issue of uh, shaken baby syndrome, mm -hmm. and that's a classical example. I attended the first national conference in Salt Lake City on uh, shaken baby syndrome, and there was a triad of findings, and this is what the consensus was, that if the child has hemorrhage underneath the covering of the brain or the subarachnoid hemorrhage, has hemorrhage of the eyeballs, retinal hemorrhage, and swelling of the brain, then it's shaken baby syndrome. We know now that, in fact, that's not true. Biomechanical models have come and said this is absolutely not consistent with it. So most of us have moved away from that definition. And it's not that they were wrong when they came up, but this, is their, this was a consensus report. And it's true for many aspects of science. As we discover more things, we come to realize that this is not necessarily pathognomonic or diagnostic finding. For example, hemorrhage in the retina can occur due to many, many causes. You know, a child is found unresponsive and the first thing is to resuscitate the child. The sudden heaving of the chest 
produces surge of blood for going into the brain, and this is this causes retinal hemorrhage. So if I have an eye in a postmortem exam, a blood in the eye, does that mean that it is resuscitative, or is it because of the shaking? So what I'm trying to say is that we are all the time discovering new things, identifying new, and and, and our understanding is changing, and we have to understand that. Just because we have discarded something in the past doesn't mean necessarily it was junk, because it wasn't junk at the time. That's this right. was our understanding. So one, one important point on that, right? So what's the remedy? Right, you, you have, if, if, and I believe Dr. Perwani, let's take that as a given. Science changes. That science is used to convict people. What is, what is the fast-track remedy that we need to have in place in order to, uh, to right a potential wrong. And, and right now there's not nothing that I'm aware of that is fast-track. Well, and <clears throat> you point out one of the great frustrations for prosecutors who put their heart and soul into a case, think that they've achieved justice in a case, and then come back 10 years later and find out that, oh, well, all the doctors have changed their opinion of what happened in that case. That is, I mean, your heart sinks when you hear that. Through no fault of your own, you may have put someone in prison who doesn't deserve to be there. And it causes you to question that going forward. The only way we can avoid mistakes in the criminal justice system, absolutely, is to just stop prosecuting people. I mean, that would be 100% accuracy if we just don't ever prosecute anybody. But that's not going to solve the problem that the system is set up to address. So I think what you have to do is implement checks and balances. You have, to done what you have to do what Texas has done, which is create one of the most robust post-conviction uh, set of statutes and innocence project groups and criminal justice integrity units. And you know, I see Russell from the Dallas County DA's office here. They've got a great program. But they have to fight with their commissioners to get funding so that they can do the good work that they've done. What's also frustrating to prosecutors, I'll give you an example I read here a couple weeks ago in Austin. There's a condo owners association who's having a problem with people not picking up after their dogs. So they've decided that everybody in the unit who has a dog is going to pay $30 to have a buckle swap taken from their dog and entered into a <laughs> DNA base. And there's a company called Poo Prints that when they find some doggy deposits, they can collect it, send it to this lab, and in five days they will match the dog from that, that left that deposit. In five days. For $50. And yet, if you get a DWI blood sample sent to DPS right now, it takes weeks or months to do a simple blood test for alcohol in those cases while somebody may be sitting in jail because he's indigent. I can't express to you how frustrating that is when I read a story like that and wonder why can't our system be that efficient because the science, like all sciences, is getting more advanced and cheaper as time goes on. But the problem, as Dr. Pirawani mentioned earlier, is lack of people to do the testing, lack of modern equipment to implement the newest uh, sciences. And so what we get is to switch the uh, roles on you on the Court of Criminal Appeals is we just had a, an argument in a death penalty case, the Skinner case, where one of the judges is berating the state for not testing every piece of evidence in the case. Why should, we're talking about death penalty, why shouldn't you have tested every piece of evidence in that case for DNA 
And the reality is that would shut down an entire lab for six weeks to do that while thousands of other people sit in jail waiting for their cases to be tested. We cannot, we have not put into the system the resources that we seem to want to demand uh, for the results we want. And as long as that, that dichotomy exists, we're all going to be frustrated. Okay, can, I, can I add to that, if you will allow me? Uh, from the laboratory standpoint of view, um, what Shannon said is absolutely correct. We are absolutely inundated with laboratory test requests. Mm -hmm. And I think at some point we have to sit down with the DAs and with the police and decide if you are a crime lab, then the, the criminalist in the lab should have a significant say-so as, as to what should be analyzed and what shouldn't be. Uh, for example, my trace lab has a two-year backlog. Two-year backlog. And even if my commissioners were to give me two new trace analysts, I would still have a backlog. Because when I have a crime scene, they've got 400 different items. And every item appears to be important. And every item has to be analyzed. And it is absolutely you know, personnel or human intensive. I, every item has to be examined and, 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 and tabulated. And, and therefore, I, I, I don't see how we can address that. It's so easy for the poop and the saliva to be matched, and nobody's going to question that. And nobody's giving you 400 items to be analyzed. And that is the issue. And no matter what we say, we're always going to be behind in the crime lab because the amount of evidence that is submitted to us is so enormous. You know, in a, in a regular DNA case, I would have 20, 30 samples. And the DA wants everyone to be analyzed. And the DA wants that because if he didn't do that, the defense is going to say, well, had you analyzed the sample, my guy would have been exonerated. So you have no choice, and you are defending, and you have the right to do that. And I'm in the middle of your fight. The question was, uh, what can we do right now to, I think, remedy it? If we've learned anything about the way the legislature operates, it's stories that captivate uh, y'all's attention. Tim Cole made a lot of things happen because it was a really, really tragic story that captivated a lot of people. It wasn't an accident that we had that hearing uh, right as the legislature opened. And a lot of people came over, and we talked to a lot of staffers, and we got a lot done. I think the number one thing we can do now is uh, change the law so that people who have been convicted on the basis of flawed science have a, and, and are in prison have a way to have their cases heard, have a way to have this evidence presented in a courtroom setting, and I think then we'll see people come out and then, I think indirectly through embarrassment, we can call it education, some might say that, uh, the I think and others will begin to see what happened. Wrongful conviction cases are a great engine of change. And what we need to do is continue that process, you know, allow more and more people to do it. That's our constituency and innocence project, and I think for good reason. The, to change things going forward, we need to be able to look backward and pull people out. Now, there's one other thing I want to mention. I still can't stop thinking about the poor guy that has to get a job at Poo Prince. <laughs> I guess there must be a surplus of DNA testers out there. I, I did not know that. Can't we use magic dogs for that? I mean, to sniff? I, mean, no? I, mean, I'm just... I can't wait till they analyze what's left by the right. magic I've dogs. I've got yeah. Keith Pikett's number right here. We might hey, get it. Let's, um, we're getting near the end here. I want to open this up for questions. Um, so does anybody, and we have a couple of microphones out here. Uh, if you all want to uh, come up there and ask some questions. Yes, sir. 
My name is David Wiley, and I'm from uh, San Marcos, and my knowledge of this, I'm one step above a moron, so I apologize if my question is naive or... or uh, you should run for the legislature. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be on a school board. No, he said one step above. Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry. I used to be on a school board, and you would probably attest that being legislature is much easier than being on a school board. No right? doubt about it. And, no doubt anyway, about it. Um, is this just all about winning? Because um, when I see the Michael Morton case, the, the, the uh, Todd Willingham case... And the governor actually had an uh, unprecedented moment of candor in that case where he actually said, well, this Willingham guy was a really bad guy. And I almost fell out of my chair. So is this, when you, when you see, for example, the district attorney, uh, Watkins in Dallas, that has, you know, done all kinds of great testing and, and exonerations and was criticized in some quarters for doing that, and the, and the Williamson County DA openly um, opposing retesting of DNA, is this just about winning? Is this just about public perception? Is this just, i got to get reelected? Um, I think the, the comment made earlier that every time you have an exoneration, it makes people question the court uh, and the system. I think not knowing that the people you have in jail makes you question the system more. Uh, I know what Jeff's going to say. Uh, Shannon, why don't you answer that one? Thank you. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> and, you, and you do. And it, if you sit through the next talk on, on misconduct... Uh, you know, our association just came out with a study that will be the topic of conversation in that. And I think we learned a lot of interesting lessons in that. And one of them is that uh, other than general things like eyewitness identification was the overwhelming cause of most wrongful convictions in Texas, um, it, what we found is just what Dr. Pirwani was saying earlier about prosecutors is they are also human. They're human. And so they can suffer from cognitive bias just like a lab tech can or just like a detective can in doing a, a, a photographic lineup. And so we need to, as a, a profession, address that culture. But the mistake some people make is looking at what happened in a case in 1984 and assuming that it is still the same way today. And again, go back to that conversation that we had, or, or my reference earlier to the what it was like. I don't think people remember how crime used to be an issue. Presidential campaigns would run, you know, Willie Horton ads because they were effective in 1988 because everybody was scared to death of crime. Today, if you look at voters' list of priorities, crime comes down in the, like, number 31 somewhere. So it's, it's not, we can learn some lessons from some of these older cases but we have to be careful making policy today based on something that happened 25 years ago. We wouldn't make health care policy that way. We wouldn't make education policy based on test results from 1978. We have to be careful not to make criminal justice policy based on those cases as well. Yes, ma'am. Good morning. My name is Gita Kajaris, and I'm a pre-law student at UT. Pull it down to little bit. I would like to know, since juries have such skewed ideas of forensic science due to television, is there something in place that educates them about, you know, what exists right now and what doesn't so they don't make decisions based on, you know, fic fictional expectations during deliberating? Well, that was one thing. That was one of the recommendations of the NAS report was a standardized terminology that uh, experts would have to use because they can get away with a little bit of wiggle room and prosecutors can sometimes get away with interpreting what they say in going before the juries. I mean, any of you guys? I, I just have a comment about standardized terminology. Uh, 
I, um, I think the NAS report was just fantastic, but I think it's wishful thinking that scientists would have a standardized terminology. And I think it, has, it is problematic too. Uh, for example, I gave you the discussion about uh, shaken baby syndrome. Um, what is more appropriate is you use a descriptive diagnostic terminology, descriptive, describing what it is. Now, I want to reassure Shannon that in the case of a shaken baby syndrome, we may change our opinion about how it happened, but the fact doesn't change that it happened and the baby died, so you, you can sleep restfully. Right, and okay. I'm not saying okay. that all those cases are questionable now, it's just it's being so, revisited. So when you have a fixed diagnosis, then you have a problem, because the, the fixed terminology, then you have a problem. You've got to have a leeway to describe things and say it in, in, and, and come to a conclusion based on the descriptive terminology. So I think, I think what is very important is, as far as jury is concerned is that the expert uses plain English to describe what he's saying. And he tells them why. And he spends enough time explaining. And the expert on the opposing party should do exactly the same. And so the jury has both the sides, and he supports what he's saying with, with some, some, some concrete evidence to say, why am I saying that? For example, we were in a trial just a few days back in Comanche County. A guy was in a car accident, and um, the hospital failed to take a blood sample. On admission to the hospital, he had pinpoint pupils. They were not responding to light. And the question was, was he on drugs when this accident occurred? And the answer is yes. He most probably was on some sort of an opiate drug like morphine or barbiturate. And this is why his pupils were pinpoint and not reacting to light. So now you present that in terms and in words and in language the jury understands. And the defense, of course, is going to have his expert and say, well, no, he could have a stroke and he can have the same findings. The answer is he did have a stroke. He was alive. He was speaking and he was cognitive and he was oriented, you know. So what I'm trying to say is that the burden is on the district attorney's office and the defense to present evidence in a manner and a fashion the jury understands. Right. And, and course, I think that's the best system what we got. And one of the problems, of course, is that defense attorneys can't spend that much money, often can't spend that much money. Well, you know, we've got, a, we've got a system that's hardwired to fail. That's what we have. And let me tell you, just so you guys will know that I'm not dreaming uh, that it could be better, you know, we through my state bar committee that Shannon's on, we're, we're examining other systems and how they work. And let me tell you, there are systems that are great and they do work. In the state of Colorado, for example, where they have a good, uh, fairly well-funded public defender system, and they've had it for 30 years, they've got two people on death. I think they've had one exoneration in Colorado. Well, that's what happens when people do their jobs at the trial level. Uh, experts are naturally going to be confusing. It's the lawyer's job uh, to, to dispel that. And, you know, it's like you said earlier, it, it is about winning. And it ought to be about winning. We have an adversarial system. Prosecutors should be trying to do a little better, and they should be doing justice, as the law commands them to. But for the defense function, it's about winning. And if you give defense lawyers a chance to do that, and you have good defense lawyers instead of the permanent underperforming clowns that we have now doing most court-appointed cases, because that's the way it is, because who else works for 200 bucks a throw? Clowns. That's who works for that. Members of the legislature. No. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well. Medical examiners. though, really? I mean, you know. But it, it should be about winning. But it should be about winning on a level playing field with good lawyers who have some money behind them and then go get experts and don't care about whether they're going to make a judge mad at them.
I'm sorry, we've been given the high sign. We've got to end very much. I want to thank you all for coming out here. Thank the panelists. Uh, it's been great. All right. Guys, I mean, yeah.